Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we have today, and that is what we're going to talk about uh, more today as we uh, spend time in the book of Jeremiah. If you have your Bible with you, or if you have your Bible on your phone or on any other electronic device, uh, go ahead and turn to the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah. That's where we'll spend a fair amount of our time today, probably most of it. As you know, Josh is uh, preaching a lesson series through the Bible, and uh, both Michael and I were asked to teach from the book of Jeremiah, uh, which I'm glad to do. Uh, first time I've ever done it. I, in sermons in years past, I would reference Jeremiah, but I've never really spent that much time preaching from Jeremiah, so I enjoyed the preparation to do so. Uh, the lesson today is simply Jeremiah 31. That's going to be our focus text in just a minute. We're going to start in the first chapter, though. But Jeremiah 31, a new hope. A new hope, understanding the greatest promise ever given. The focus today will be on the concept of this very real hope that we have through Jesus Christ. I think all of us have spent time on the news this week anguishing along with others the plight of those whose relatives, whether dead or alive, are trapped in the rubble of the condo that collapsed in Surfside, Florida. And as with most everyone in the first day or so, hoping that someone would be found and wondering why there are not more people on the rubble trying to get through it and then learning about the complications of the potential collapse of the other tower, the inherent danger to the searchers. Uh, and then as day after day went on, uh, no one spoke of losing hope, but everyone knew the hope of someone being found alive grew less and less as time, go, as time went on. And as you looked at the, the nature of the rubble itself, all of us would ask the question, how could anyone survive in that kind of pile of concrete and metal and furnishings from the condominiums themselves? And then the horrific thought, if you had a loved one in there, and I thought over and over again, if my children, who two of them live in Tampa, Florida, what if they were in there? And what if they were in that rubble? What would I feel? And the thought was almost too hard to fully comprehend. But the thought of there being hope, though they talk about voids they could look at and, and other disasters where they found someone days later, the idea of there being a real hope of finding anyone alive simply grew dimmer and dimmer and it's even more dimmer now. But no one said there is no longer any hope. It's just not a hope that seems to be rooted in what could really happen. But then there are other times we've hoped for something different. Um, years ago, I was with a church in El Cajon down in the San Diego area. One of our elders developed multiple myeloma. And if you know about that condition, it's a bone blood disease. And it guarantees certain death unless there's some effective treatment. And the elder Don Chanel was able to go to a hospital in Duarte, California, in the upper L.A. area, 
and it's simply and appropriately called the City of Hope. And through the prayers of God's people and through the effective treatments uh, in that place called the City of Hope, Don Chanel is still alive today, though well into his 90s. So hope is sometimes very elusive, as with the condominium collapse, or another time it's very real, as some, not all, cancer patients are successfully treated. But as the song that Nathaniel saying says, Jesus Christ is our living hope. And Peter says we have a living hope through Jesus Christ. Well, I want to see when that hope was announced in a very meaningful way, going back to the darkest days of the nation of Israel's history. And that's Jeremiah. I want to first briefly go through the background of Jeremiah, if you're new to the book or new to the study. The book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah himself, is one of four what are called major prophets. Jeremiah, along with uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, are prophetical books that have a lot of content, a high volume of chapters. That's why they're called their major prophets. Uh, there are 17 prophetical books altogether. Four of them are these major prophets. A prophet specifically was a spokesperson for God. They did not always speak to the future, even though that was a major part of what they did. Mainly, they were the preachers of the Old Testament. They were the preachers of the Old Testament. They warned people about what would happen if uh, they did not retent, repent or turn from their sin. But other times they would give a promise of hope where God would speak way into the future of his people and talk about things that would happen that would be on a good level. But mostly these prophets lived through the worst of times and especially Jeremiah. Especially Jeremiah. There wasn't one positive picture I could find of Jeremiah in all the catalog of artistic renderings of him in his life. Except this one where he seemed to look up. <laughs> to look into the future and it fits perfectly with what's revealed in Jeremiah 31. But yet most of his writings in this very large book are written in agony. About what will happen with God's people unless they turn things around. Jeremiah personally experienced consequences that the nation experienced. Though he does not appear guilty of the sins that they committed, he was carried away into captivity eventually by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., just as they were, never to be heard from again. He suffered along with the people for their sin. And he had to live through the darkest days as the Babylonian Empire slowly moved its way down into the area of what we call Palestine or Israel today. Jeremiah addressed the present as well as the future. But notably, he is quoted in the New Testament. Matthew 2, when Herod attempts to slaughter all the baby boys under two. Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31 about Rachel weeping for her children. But then the writer of Hebrews, as he contrasts the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, speaks in chapter 8 and chapter 10 about this one chapter, 31, and something that's said that changes everything. And that's why we're going to spend time with this book. So we've just looked at the background. In just a moment, we're going to look at the plight of Jeremiah, just to see how dark his situation was. Then we're going to look at this promise of chapter 31. And then we're going to look at three practical applications uh, from this chapter itself. Let's first look at the plight of Jeremiah. 
The word plight is not a word we use a whole lot. Except maybe when you see someone, as you could easily see driving through the streets of San Francisco, the plight of those that we commonly call the homeless. Not too long ago, Lisa and I were driving through the city and there's awful scenes there of people in situations far beyond destitute. Recently we saw one just crawled up on the street corner with just a blanket encapsulating him or you couldn't even tell that was a human being inside there. And I thought, this is someone's daughter. This is someone's son. Do they even know they're there? And that's a plight. And I want to talk about the plight of Jeremiah. And he, like the prophet Hosea, had to live the messages that they preached and had to suffer along with, again, the people as he preached what God inevitably was going to do if they did not turn the course of their lives. And we're going to see as we look at Jeremiah's situation himself is that sin hurts others. Even though we don't read of Jeremiah's own sin, he was preaching against sin. He was still hurt by what others were doing at the time. Again, he lived during the darkest days of Israel's history. Look at chapter 1 of Jeremiah, verses 1 through 3. Here, Jeremiah puts his writing strictly in a historical context. This is not myth or fable. This is the ancient history that's documented in other places of the nation of Israel and of Babylon. Verse 1, it says, The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him. In the thirteenth year, the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. There's the rooting of these events in history. They're in the latter part of the nation of Judah's history. Remember, Israel used to be one united nation under uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. But then after the death of Solomon, because of the sin of the people, the nation divided into two separate parts, a northern kingdom uh, comprised of ten tribes, and then a southern kingdom comprised of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom is now gone. It has been wiped out, taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. All that's left is Judah. That's why it's the king of Judah being mentioned here and his son. And they're just years from collapse. But they're the only ones here mentioned. And Jeremiah writes, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. They are on a collision course with captivity because of their sin. That God has called Jeremiah to speak to the people. Look at verse 4. This is what Michael referenced last week. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet for the nations. Jeremiah would speak not only to the remaining nation of Judah. He would speak to these other nations that... God, even though he was using to punish his own people, God would punish them eventually themselves. 
So he was a prophet to both groups. And a prophet, again, is a spokesperson. Don't think of someone just foretelling the future. Think of someone speaking to the present, but would also address the future. But he preached a real message of doom and gloom. Look at verse 15. We'll look at 15 and 16, then look at chapter 2. Here the Lord tells him, I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their king will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all their surrounding walls and against the towns of Judah. Verse 16, chapter 1, I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me in burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. The number one sin of the Old Testament was idolatry, where people would replace the true and living God with simply worthless things called idols, images that they would call their gods, though there was only one God. We see that right after they crossed the Red Sea in Exodus 32 and the, and the creating of this golden calf, and that became the story of their history, going into idolatry, then coming out of it, going back into it, then God punishing them, and they come out of it. But now they're doomed. God says the time is done, and they're headed to captivity because they've had other gods in front of them, and they've replaced the true God with these basically fake gods. And don't be surprised that we do that today. It can be a career, it can be material possessions, it can be relationships, anything that we put in place of God. Anything we put in place of God becomes an idol, and it's been done throughout time. When Jeremiah would preach against this, they would attack him. They'd humiliate him in some circumstances. One time in Jeremiah chapter 38, they put him in a well, but he kept preaching. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. This again was the message. He had to tell them the truth about their life. In chapter 2, verse 11, uh, Jeremiah says, Has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they are not gods at all? But my people, look what he says, verse 11, But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Here God in vivid detail describes exactly what they've done. They've got rid of me and they they put all their water in these broken jars and they're carrying them around and they're just going to break. That is, these false idols, they will mean nothing and they do nothing. And God uses Jeremiah to tell the people how dark of a situation this is. That everything that matters and the one who truly matters the most, they've set aside for all these trinkets and these false gods. That's what Jeremiah has to preach. One sermon after another of basically doom and gloom and then attacked for it. His, emo his own emotions about it are captured in uh, chapter 9, verse 1. 
Often Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And chapter 9, verse 1 kind of speaks to why. Jeremiah writes, Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Here, Jeremiah is not just producing sermons on a keyboard or writing them down on paper. He's preaching them. He's seeing the consequences of their sin. He's seeing the reality of what they're doing, exchanging uh, the truth of God for a lie. And he's in constant tears over it. At times I've thought about those who work in the profession of being a therapist, like a marriage and family therapist. And hour after hour every day, counseling people whose lives are full of heartbreak, of sadness, of separation, divorce, estrangement, self-destructive behaviors, alienation from people they love the most and depression about their own personal situation. Every day, hour after hour, hearing that. And I wondered, how, how do therapists go home at night? How do they disconnect from the hurt that they try to help with every day? And I admire those in that profession, but that's essentially what Jeremiah is doing. He's living every day the pain of other people's lives and in tears over it. That is the bulk of this book. That's why it's not the favorite book of Bible studies. You don't hear too many people gathering, hey, let's study Jeremiah. Because the bulk of it is doom and gloom. As it accurately records, here's what happens when people leave God. But then when you hit chapter 30, though, Jeremiah, and especially chapters 30 through 34, the mood changes because the language changes, and God looks ahead even to the time after he has finished punishing his people. And that's where we're going to spend our time now. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 31. All the chapters we're skipping as you go to and scrolling past, they're not pleasant. There's not a whole lot of verses to quote. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23 is a pretty good one to quote as far as being positive. But most of them we just, we just go over because they're messages of cataclysmic doom. And God detailing here's exactly why my people are going to go into captivity, why I'm going to allow the Babylonians to come down. And it truly does happen in 586 B.C. But in chapter 31, and starting with chapter 30, but especially in 31, things change because there's restoration that it's announced. Restoration that's announced. We don't have time to read through all of this. I wish we did. But I've just kind of highlighted how that renewal is promised in verses 1 through 2. Let's just pick up a few of these. Look at verse 1 and 2. At that time declares the Lord, this is in the future, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. 
This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Verse 4, I will build you up again and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. This is the first real message of hope. It's been captivity, consequences, cataclysm. But now the sun, this, this verbiage changes to being that of restoration and God rebuilding his people because of what kind of love? An everlasting love. One of the great hymns of the past that needs to be resurrected is simply entitled, O Love That Will Not Let Us Go. And that's exactly the love of our God. He will not let his people go and he comes back to them. He chases after them. He has to go down the dark holes where they put themselves. He finds them and pulls them out if they're willing. And that's what Jeremiah 31 is here. He says, verse 4, I will build you up again. And he says, virgin Israel. And why that's significant is up to this point, how has God's people been, or how have God's people been described as the prostitute Israel? They've sold themselves to these other nations and their gods, but now they are called, once again, virgin Israel, because he's starting afresh with them. And this chapter speaks about a joyful celebration of the people. They're going to return to their land, this remnant that was promised to return. All are included. There's still grief over why they were separated. But there's a restoration to the land that's promised in 16 and 17. There's a role reversal from being a prostitute people to a virgin people that's captured again in uh, verses 18 and 19. God's compassions revealed verse 20 there's a call to faithfulness in chapter 21 and, I'm sorry verse 21 and 22 God promises security for his people verses 23 through 25 and he reveals all this to Jeremiah in a dream as God constantly or as he commonly did so in ancient times he would use visions and dreams to speak to his people and he does that way or does so that way <clears throat> Jeremiah verse 26 but look at verse 27, because we're going to focus on this section going through verse 34. We find this phrase in verse 27, the days are coming. That is, God's looking to the future. The days are coming, verse 27 declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of people and of animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster. So I will watch over them to what? To build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Verse 30, instead, here's what people will say. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin, Whoever eats grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. That's responsibility. But then went, again, verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. Verse 33. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, for they all will know me from the least of them to the greatest. <clears throat> then verse 34, one of the five greatest texts of the Bible. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Again, let's review what we've seen. First, he says the days are coming. So in the future, God has a new plan for his people and it involves a new covenant. The first covenant was a disaster, not because God failed in what he wrote down for the people. It failed, he says, because of the people themselves. They did not keep it. And though they were promised things in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, they did not receive those things because they failed to be obedient to God. And because the people were the failures, not God, he's going to replace and start with a new covenant. The first covenant did not have true provision for forgiveness. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. That's why animal sacrifices over and over again had to be given. And that should have made the point with the people, there's something wrong here. We keep having to offer sacrifices for our sin. Well, part of the problem was they kept on sinning. But within the first covenant was not a provision for once for all forgiveness. But here the Lord says he's going to make a new covenant. Where he's going to forgive their wickedness. And we're going to explore in just a moment what that really means. And he's going to remember their sins no more. Let's explore it now. Let's look closely at this promise of Jeremiah. What we find here is a solution to sin is announced. Not a band-aid to sin. Not a vaccine that takes maybe two or three doses to maybe work. But a true solution to our ultimate terminal condition that we all have. And that is the problem of sin and death. The wages of sin is death. Paul says, Romans 6 verse 23. Romans 3.10, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's our terminal condition, and God is doing something about it, foretelling what he will do through Jesus Christ. Let's look at it closely. First of all, a remnant of Israel is going to return home. We saw that in chapter 30, verse 3. Part of this promise involves simply the physical people that were captives coming back to their land and re-inhabiting the area of Israel. The nation's going to return, at least what's left of it that wants to come home from captivity. But the greatest part of this promise is the nation's going to return, but there's good news about the problem that sent them into captivity to start with. That is this problem with sin. Again, for I will forgive their wickedness, verse 34, and I will remember their sins no more. If it was not for Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10, which we're going to look at now, 
probably it would be easy to skip over this, not realizing the magnitude of what the Lord has said. But look how this one text of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, is picked up in the New Testament, the covenant that we are under. Let's go ahead and turn to, uh, turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. The entire book of Hebrews is about the contrast between the first covenant that God gave to the physical nation of Israel and this new covenant that we are under today through Jesus Christ and His blood. The text that Thomas even read in the uh, preparatory words before the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26. Jesus says, this is the blood of the what? The new covenant. His blood will change everything. That is his life and sacrifice. Look how the writer of Hebrews, which is most likely the Apostle Paul, picks up on that. Verse 7, chapter 8. The writer says, For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming. This is a quotation of Jeremiah 31 now. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain <coughs> excuse me, faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, this is the covenant I will establish with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest. Verse 12. This is Jeremiah 31, 34 being quoted. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Look at chapter 10 now. A second quotation of the very same text. Verse 15, chapter 10. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is a covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Verse 18, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. In two very prominent places in the New Testament, Hebrews 8 and chapter 10, Holy Spirit who drove the writings of Jeremiah and also drove the writings of the writer of Hebrews speaks to the fact that God is forgiving His people in this new covenant through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. We are used to self-medicating when it comes to our problem with sin. We have a powerful conscience that even though we might have not any exposure to Christianity, people have a conscience that tells them, hey, when I stole something or I hurt someone, I did something very wrong. <clears throat> or when I should have helped and I ignored a problem, I did something wrong. So we try to self-medicate. 
we oftentimes will try to make up for our sin by doing a lot of good in our life. Giving a lot of money later in life to try to make up for the youthful indiscretions, if you will, or the sinful paths we took in an earlier part of our life. That's what some do. Some will self-medicate by literally trying to medicate to take the pain of their conscience away. But it always comes back and all of a sudden they find themselves addicted to substances or alcohol. They're just trying to anesthetize the pain of their conscience. Nothing works with our problem of sin except the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, the ancient hymns captured it with no uncertain terms. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? The answer was absolutely clear. True forgiveness is what we need. Not temporary anecdotes or something to make ourselves feel better for the hours of pain. And we live in a very painful time in history. We live in a time where sins of the past can be easily resurrected to make life even worse than it already is for us. The invention of social media where things can be captured in photograph or words that you yourself have written can be preserved and then be brought back to life by someone that wants to get back at you later. Uh, politicians learn this all the time. Things you said in the past can come back and haunt you in the future. We live in a time where everything of the past is captured. Our children grow up with everything they've done being captured in a photograph or in words. <clears throat> Earlier generations did not have to deal with that. Things were not written down. He didn't take a picture of everything. Now when something bad's happening... The first thing that comes out is not help, but some, a phone to capture it for someone to then sell that video then online to people that will pay for it. That's the sick culture we live in. Everything gets captured or remembered. And then make it even worse, we live in what's called a cancel culture. Where some that presume to be more self-righteous will say, well, your certain sins are so bad, you don't count anymore. And you can't be employed depending on what you've done now by our ever-changing standards. We are in a culture that really, in a way, deals with sin even worse. Because not only has sin caused separation between ourselves and our God, it separates between everybody else too. And some people make sure it separates. That's why there needs to be a true answer. But look what's being promised here. Look what it says in Hebrews 8, verse 12, and chapter 10, verse 17, as they both quote Jeremiah 31, 34. Look what God will do with our sins. He says in chapter 8, verse 12, For I will forgive, not record, not capture on film, not retweet. I will forgive their sins, or their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. This is only given through our God. Don't count on forgiveness, though you can ask for it from other people. 
We live in a culture that sometimes proclaims three strikes and you're out. Or a strike in your teen years is now captured and you're out and you must resign. You're, we're in a vindictive culture. But when God says he will forgive us through the blood of his son, he's telling us exactly what he's going to do with our sins. And what is it? It says here in 8 verse 12 in Jeremiah 31, and remember their sins no more. Another word we could use is amnesty. When things you've actually done and things I've actually done are not counted against us, legally, that's called amnesty. You are guilty, but you're not going to suffer the consequences. And the eternal consequences of our sin are worse than anything we could describe. The punishment that is described in Scripture is beyond our full ability to grasp. That's why we want to water it down. And that's why we need this answer, so we can face God in judgment one day with our sins forgiven and everything rest on God not bringing up the past and not, God not dredging up everything we've ever done or thought or left excuse me, undone. The bag of sins and the multiple bags of sins we'd have to drag with us to the judgment day would be too much to bear. And God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, when we put our hope and our trust in Him, we believe that He's the Son of God, we repent of our sins, having heard the message of salvation, and then are baptized to have those sins, what? Washed away and never to return, we are given something that is not given anywhere else in our lives. True forgiveness. And even if others remember and they try to drag up the past, or our conscience does, because we can never really forget. God says, I forget. The one that really needs to forget, I've forgotten those sins. That is not holding them against us. And he never will again as long as we keep our faith and trust in Him. And that changes everything. It grants us new life. That's why Israel was called virgin Israel, no longer prostitute Israel, because they were renewed, they were restored to their land. And God calls them His people, as He calls us today His people. And even though we sin after baptism, God is faithful and just to forgive us through His Son. I want to end with these three applications of the promise given to Jeremiah to preach that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Number one, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. That is, our sins are no longer held against us. They are forgiven and not to be drudged up again in the future. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't go anywhere else. Our sins are forgiven, which means they're forgotten. That means the immature sins of our youth, the inexcusable sins of our adulthood, they are forgiven by God's grace and love and mercy. And even if others want to remind us or our own sense of our own history haunts us, God says they are forgiven. 
to live with assurance of God's forgiveness. He will remember them no more. Believe that. God's biggest problem with forgiveness is getting us to believe it and trying to get us not to pay him back or to try to do a bunch of good to make up for it, but simply to believe and trust in forgiveness. He says he will remember them no more. First John, again, chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have continual cleansing through the blood of Christ. If we continue to be honest with God about our sin, confess those sins to God, don't play games with Him, don't call sin anything less than sin. If we just come clean about what He already knows we've done, even as Christians, He says, I will remember those sins no more. Is there a better deal anywhere? Is there a greater gift? Is there any more hopeful promise to our terminal condition than what God has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Which means this, number three, you are not defined by your past. And may thanks be to God for that. I don't want to be defined by my darkest hours. I don't want to be defined by sins through which I'm still living the consequences even though I've been forgiven. I want to end with one text. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, the people that would probably say we're the first in line as far as being the worst of sinners. Just see all the things Paul wrote about in this book. But look what Paul writes about the Corinthians in chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. He says, verse 9, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor practicing homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God of our God. He says you were that. And you see the way Paul writes to the Corinthians in the first chapter. He describes them as the people of God. Despite their sinful past, that is the power of the cleansing sacrifice of Jesus. As we conclude this morning, we have had great thoughts that Thomas brought to us about the, the meaningfulness of this day. July 4th, June 15th, any day that celebrates liberation, emancipation. Freedom is a day of celebration, but our greatest celebration is the emancipation from the shackles of our own sin, our own self-created enslavement through what we ourselves have done. And we celebrate it every first day of the week through the Lord's Supper. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, who the Son makes free is free indeed. You and I can sleep tonight. And we can walk in freedom because of what Jesus did for us. And as we're marching on to Zion, we can rest every day 
and the confidence that Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we have forgiveness through his blood. And that will carry us home. And that's why he is our living hope. Don't stray from this hope. He is the life vessel sent to us. The saving vessel to rescue us. Don't throw away the, the rescue line that's been thrown to you through Jesus. Stay steady. If you falter, come back. And that's the beauty of forgiveness. We can always come back. And God continually calls us to return to restoration, to renewal. And allow yourself to be renewed. We're going to sing a song now to continue to remind us of the importance of faithfulness. God's invested everything in you. He's invested his son in you. He's not going to let you go. So don't let go of him. Don't let go of him. He will forgive your sins and remember them no more. Today, if you need to come to Jesus for cleansing that you know you've never received through Jesus, you can learn more if you want to understand more about what Jesus has done and what it means to believe in him and what change is involved in conversion and what it means to be baptized. We'll sit down and we'll talk with you more about that. But if you know already and you need to come to Jesus, why put it off? So the old hymn goes, why not now? But for most of us, it simply means renewal. Always renew yourself through Jesus Christ. Don't self-medicate. Renew through Jesus. He is our only hope. Let's stand and sing the song that Nathaniel's prepared.